I'm always feeling like I'm one step from catastrophe. <laughs> I learned with car cards, you wear a shirt with a pocket. That way, they don't go flying across when you sneeze or somebody bumps your elbow or whatever. Or an apron. I have a little apron that I can wear when I remember to bring it, you know, when we're doing car cards. You're listening to The Crossing Gate, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Gazier and Ken Zeska. This episode of the Crossing Gate Podcast is sponsored by the Vestful of Railroad Pins. Do you want to stand out at the next train show? Do you want to be the center of attention? Then you need a vest full of railroad pins. Yes, these vests have been popular from the 1950s all the way up to 1968. Collect pins from your favorite railroads, your favorite conventions, even your least favorite railroads and conventions, because the vest with the most pins wins. We have no idea what you win. But it sure seems like a contest to us. So if you want to be the talk of the next show, or at least talked about at the next show, wear your vest full of pins. Vest full of pins, not to be confused with vest full of patches. The patches are worn only by splinter groups, such as the Free People's Vest Full of Patches and the Vest Full of Patches Society. All right, welcome to another episode of the Crossing Gate Podcast. Today we're going to talk about what are you doing differently? Have your modeling skills evolved? And joining me tonight, we have Joe Binish. Good evening. Mr. Mike Jordan. Hello. Mr. William Sampson. Hello, y'all. Ken Zeska. He's on mute. Uh, Larry Eggering. Hello, everyone. And Dan Dosa. Hey, everybody. And so we'll start off this discussion. We'll go to you, Dan, about what, what are you doing differently uh, now that you've started your, one of your latest layouts here? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, this is my third serious adult model railroad. Each one has been a learning experience. I've grown from each one. I, I'm enjoying the hobby more and more, which I think is, is an important thing for people to know. These refinements to my modeling have really improved my enjoyment of the hobby. With that, let me talk about a couple of things. So one, my concept of modeling has evolved to wanting to do more prototype model, trying to replicate the prototype. The reality of that is you can't possibly squeeze it into whatever space you have. So I've really had to narrow very carefully the scope and range of my modeling. That's actually not proved to be a problem. In fact, it's been wonderful. I do a very small segment of a small railroad. I try to model it realistically as much as I can. And it's been very satisfying. And you've learned yeah. a lot of lessons in that, right? I mean, you've learned, you know, how to build a layout almost better because you you could, I know you built your layout where you could put it on its side and not be underneath its soldering and wiring, correct? Well, that's, that's the second part is trying to construct the layout differently. So, for example, Larry was commenting earlier before we started. He had had these, Larry, what, what would you call them? 
the little brackets for uh, switches and LEDs. They're they're uh, recessed pockets for buttons and LEDs. Okay, like a like so, a fascia plate. Like it's a it's a fascia plate, but it's recessed. Yep. So the first thing I did was when I constructed the frame of my layout, I actually built it slightly smaller than the actual outline of the layout. What that allowed me to do was take the fascia, and when I need to put things into the fascia, DCC plugs and things of that nature, or something like this, I have room behind it. I don't have to hack through my frame in order to do that. No, I hadn't thought of it before. As Tom mentioned, wiring is not something that's my on my top 10 favorite list, but it's important. So my layout's a long shelf. I could tip it up on end or on edge, and I could wire everything under the layout without bending over. I used T-tap connectors, so I don't I didn't have to do any soldering under the layout. The only soldering for all of my wiring is on the feeders to the tracks. I really tried to make sure that my track, my wiring, my electrical, everything is bulletproof. And if it wasn't, I stopped and I fixed. And, you know, as a result, you know, my layout runs very reliably. And I really, really can't emphasize how wonderful that is. So, you know, I learned to slow down, take my time, and not rush to the next phase of construction. Yeah, I think that's important that you learn how to evolve all that. And Joe, we'll go to Joe Binish. How have your, your modeling skills improved or evolved over the last umpteen years? Well, we started my layout in 2009, so what is that, 12 years, 13, something like that. I knew my layout was going to be an operating layout because I had been hanging out with Rich Ramirez and, and enjoyed operating his layout, so I knew I wanted mine to operate. And I am kind of a freight car nut, and you know, most of you guys know that. But So I, I wanted that blend of, of the freight cars and, and the well-detailed equipment and well-detailed scenes and the operations. And so you build the first... Uh, resin freight car and you put it on the layout and great it's wonderful it looks great but then you operate it and it's like oh okay i have to be more careful with the ladders and the grab irons because if they're not attached well they get knocked off and it's kind of a hunt to find the next to find those pieces and get them back on your construction techniques have to be a little tighter and you know you're better with the glue and that kind of stuff so that's all happened painting just through practice you know and doing more things i've got 300 cars on the layout i've probably painted 200 of them anyway and then, you know, electrical, I'm very jealous of you, Dan. I'd, I'd like to tip my house on end and be able to solder without uh, uh, <laughs> crawling under the layout and performing gymnastics. But maybe on the next layout, if we ever move, you know, scenery, we're just kind of getting into. I've been operating a lot and, and we're kind of, there are certain scenes that are really well done and there are certain scenes it's, you know, a plywood Pacific. So I, I need to get those moving. But the materials are what the, the big difference in the scenery is, is the static grasses and those. Those little clumps of weeds and the detritus from Martin Wahlberg and those guys makes a huge difference and really look great. It's one of those things you have to get in there and do it. Nothing gets better reading about it and reading about it and watching videos on YouTube. You can do that for the first few things to get an idea, but everybody's technique is just a little different. And if you don't get in there and do it, you're not going to get any better at it. It's just going to, you're going to stagnate and wish you had gotten better. I was just gonna say on that on that note though, Joe, and the fact that you know, like you wish you'd have gotten better. The only way you do get better is actually making the attempts, and the only way you actually learn to get better is by doing it. Because you can always look at somebody's you know project and say, "Oh, I could I could custom build that. I could do that." Well, a lot of times 
you know, you might not be able to, you might not have those skills yet. And as a younger modeler myself, I was fortunate enough to learn over the years. And, you know, unfortunately, for my dad's case, he lost a few boxcars or locomotive paint schemes <laughs> based on my practice. And it a lot Butcher. of times had to get covered up somehow. I did a 40-foot boxcar that I had stripped it. So I learned how to strip a car, got it cleaned off, and then I started to paint it. And it didn't turn out well. So I learned out how to restrip a car. And <laughs> I went through this whole process. And at one point, I hid the car up in my room, thought, this thing is a train wreck. It's a mess. I got to figure this out. So I started looking through some magazines and books and started to kind of figure out a game plan that if I make it look like one of the great northern prototypes, maybe my dad will look at it and say, hey, that's not so bad. You know, it's a, it's a prototypical car. I decal it right. We're going to forget even the paint scheme that I started with and the car that I had started on, but learning those skills as time went on and building on those. I mean, I go to your guys' layouts now and I marvel at Joe's custom painting and you look at it and think, holy smokes, how do you get there? But it is jumping off that ledge and getting yourself in a position. You know, even Mike Jordan, he's working on the, the 70 ton switchers. It's a fascinating process to watch or hear from him as he progresses through it because He's going through an unknown. You're going through a channel that none of us have really experienced in this detail. But like, Mike, how, how about your switchers? And when you dove into the, the, the 70 tonners, the learning process for yourself going through that and bringing that into your railroad. First of all, I like the idea of using somebody else's model to practice on. So <laughs> kudos to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, these are my GE 70 tonners. Really is trial by error. Uh, and uh, one of the things that listening to everybody is you have to understand that this is a hobby. The doing by trial and error is part of the hobby. If you don't enjoy making mistakes, then I guess there's a different hobby to get into. So, But every mistake is a learning curve. And with my GE 70-tonners, I'm using Stanton drives to motorize them. I ordered the Stanton drives and I looked at the shell and I looked at the Stanton drives and tried to figure out how I could get the two to mate. Figured out I'd just get a piece of uh, brass uh, bar, use that for my frame because brass is pretty easy to work. And so that was the first step in the learning curve is just fiddling around. And Well, Mike, what keeps I, I, driving you on that, though? Because I know this has been one we've talked about for a while. What keeps you motivated to keep going at it? Deep in heart of me, I'm an eight-year-old that uh, succumbs to peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, the satisfaction of the doing, showing progress to others because uh, you get great input and uh, I think that is out of the number one thing in model railroading is uh, working with other modelers and having them put peer pressure on you to keep working and uh, and once something works uh, you know you don't want to brag about it but you definitely want to put it on the front shelf and show it off so well, it's cool well, to see, and you you did successfully pull a string of freight cars. So you, you at least so people know your engine has pulled cars, correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but you know now once you get it mechanically working, you know that's just the first stage. Now you want to make sure that it's uh, prototypically uh, accurate uh, or semi-prototypically accurate. 
so that's the next step that I'm working on is uh, finishing the decaling. And then I was just thinking about the next one I'm going to build. <laughs> I'm going to have to pull everything I've done apart. And then use what I've got as... Uh, I'm trying to remember what you did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess I'll, I'll start taking pictures as I take it apart. Well, it's been fun to watch. We appreciate you sharing. And it's always awesome. good, I think, for us to... It, it's motivating. I start working on other projects. I see the stuff that you're doing. And hopefully, you know, within one another, we're sharing information. And I know, Larry, you pointed out the little uh, modules on the front of your fascia. And Mike even kind of chimed in on you know, getting things more prototypical. Do you on your railroad, uh, do you try to strive for the prototype side of things? And when or if you do, do you run into hiccups or hurdles that you've learned over the years in that process or quest? The advantage you have when you build layouts for other people is you can do all of it. My layout's very whimsical. I have a customer that just likes to run trains in a circle. He does a little bit of switching. So I've done that. I worked on a guy who developed a full prototype uh, Penzi-style railroad between two small towns. The great advantage is over all these years, I've gotten the ability to do it all. Fortunately for me, the first time I visited a large model railroad, I was in Brunswick, Maine. The hobby shop up there had a large basement that the club met in, and this was in the early 1980s. And these guys were handling track. They were building all their turnouts by hand. So I was mentored early on by those guys. I would go up there for two or three weeks at a time teaching electronics courses. And every time I came in town, they knew I wanted to learn something. So there was always something new. Having people around you, Ronald Reagan said that, you know, they asked him what he did right. And he said, I staff my weakness. And we should do that as model railroaders. In other words, if my friend Richard is amazing at just the thought process on what does a machine look like that does this? And he will go out and scratch build these crazy things that nobody else would, you know. Rube Goldberg? But, uh, beyond that. <laughs> I should show pictures one time. But, you know, Larry, what, what you say is spot on. Uh, it's one of the things I, I picked up is you know, I started with this idea that, well, I, I have to do everything myself. I and, agree. I'm with you, Dan. And because, because I had young kids and I was very, very busy with work, I didn't have much opportunity to really interact with other modelers. You know, what I feel like is we've, we've sort of up here created a brain trust of people who all have really good skills, are really talented, and we can rely on each other when we run into things we don't know. I confess, I, I don't know how to program a DCC locomotive. I really don't want to learn. <laughs> well, God love him. Uh, programmed all my locomotives to, you know, so I could reconfigure the speed curves and things. It's, it's absolutely fabulous because that's a skill I don't have. Joe Benish, Joe built, cast a bunch of retaining wall sections for me that I've used on my current layout. You know, other people have, in the same ways, helped me at each step along the way. And Oh my gosh, what a, a fabulous, fabulous resource. You know, what I would say is I, one of the biggest for me is establishing a community of model railroaders that I enjoy, value, and respect. And I really feel very, very fortunate to have found that. I second that. 
Yeah, I would agree. And I think the thing that uh, you're touching on there is really the versatility of fellow modelers, period. Now, we're in a group of guys that we're talking, obviously, amongst one another on a semi-annual basis. But for guys that don't, it is at a flea market. If it's a guy next to you that's looking at a locomotive that is similar to something you're interested in, say, hey, Sioux Line, not a bad unit to pick up. The Milwaukee Road, I'd probably put that one back down. But you, you have that little conversation, and the next thing you know, you spark, and it starts to spiral. Because I do learn from each one of you, but I also learn from so many other modelers, and I know you guys do as well. But when you're looking at a lot of that type of stuff and bridging those gaps and having those conversations, it's elevating it. Because I know, Dan, I could show you how to dive into a locomotive. I've done that for my dad, and he's looked at it and said, I'm going to forget in 10 minutes anyhow. Yeah. Just do the next <laughs> And, and, and we all are guilty of it. We all have these skill sets. Same with Joe. Joe showed some painting techniques, and I've applied them. But at the same time, he's continuing to advance those skills. And one of the things I look at I really admire is, is on the track lane side, are guys that are willing to dive into some of the hand-laid turnouts and customization of that set. I mean, Tom, you've done hand-laid turnouts. What took you down that angle? And how did you get yourself in a position that you decided, I'm going to lay all these turnouts by hand? Yeah, that was, that's a big one for me. Of Even Joe does that. Of Where I was, you know, from flex track and, and the store-bought switches, just the entire, you know, all the derailments, all the issues, it didn't fit. Having something like Fast Tracks come out with instructional videos and a website, and they'd come to shows where you, I could bring in a switch. What am I doing wrong? And they do, you're doing this, idiot. I'm like, oh, okay. And I, you know... <laughs> I think we should talk when we're like airbrushing. I always wanted to be a, a great painter. I just love painting and decaling. That's one of my favorite things in the hobby. But my airbrushing was so, was horrible because no one taught me about mixing paint thinner ratio. No one taught me about the right pressure. No one taught me how to properly clean an airbrush. So I'd be buying a new airbrush every eight months. And then I meet people like Joe and, and others. They're like, well, do this or try this. And your, your paint's too thick. And I'm like... Well, I don't want to paint 10 coats. They're like, you're going to have to paint 10 coats of white and yellow. You know? <laughs> don't and then you yellow, pick then. yellow. Well, yellow is yellow. <laughs> and even in like, like photography, and I think part of the ages, I always like taking model photos. And I always believed way back when John Allen said, best way to improve your layout is look at photos of it. And now with oh, digital, yeah. I, you know, I went all in and bought the stacking software and the affinity program. And I work and I work and I work at it. But it, it's kind of handy where, like, you know, William, you brought up your wrecking your dad's car with this di digital image. If I don't, if I don't like it, I can just erase it or toss it. I want to talk about this community, and I'm going to go to you, Ken, because I this is what I believe is our greatest resource: is you guys and more is our community. Which, to me, being an NMRA member is one of the biggest things that I push. They're like, well, everybody's, what do I get out of joining? You know, and I a lot of people turn to. The money aspect, like they're joining Costco or Sam's Club. I'm like, we can give you some discounts, but the greatest thing you're going to get is friendship and community out of it. And I don't know how to get that across to people that when you join these groups like this or historical society or museums, that you'll meet like-minded people and have these kind of discussions. Ken, what do you, what do you think about community in Monterey? I think that's great on a number of different levels. One way, like you say it, uh, it, it gives you exposure to people that have other ideas and have other skills, but also it helps you get over the uh, the dead spots. And I can't speak for everybody else, but I certainly get to the point where I'm a little overwhelmed 
and I, I just have to back away. And, and so I need to have some people I can bounce things off of. I need to listen to the fact that somebody else is having problems doing something to say, okay, well, they, they can get over it. I can get over it also. You mentioned talking about turnouts in S-scale. There have not been trouble for years. Now, occasionally, somebody will come up and make some, but I had to learn how to make And so getting the fast tracks turnouts and then talking to people and working with people around here that knew how to do that is really helpful because uh, some things that, that you may think are intuitive and everybody knows, other people just don't know that. Uh, I got the the, the uh, copper coated PC board ties and boy, they're nice and shiny. I thought, oh, that's really great. Then somebody said, well, you got to sand them. And I said, oh, but they're already nice and bright. No, they're not nice and bright enough. So it's little things like that that help make your skills better. Just listening to you guys talk about the consistency of paints. And I went down and I tried that. I, I'd gotten away from airbrush and I was so frustrated by it. And uh, it just helps me get back into it. But I, I appreciate there's people that like to be alone in their cave, and that's okay. But uh, for me and for hopefully a lot of people, it's just nice having a work with, share ideas with. Hey, Ken, I have a question for yes. you. Yeah. Uh, it's a long one, so pay attention. Um, 1999-ish, uh, I went to the NMRA meet down. It was at the Everett McClay VFW down there in Bloomington. Yeah. And happened to meet Rich Ramirez, and and we've been buddies ever since, and been operating on you know layouts and working on layouts and that kind of thing. You can or mention a lot of times of your S scale group. Uh, is it kind of the same thing where guys come in and and so and so is brand new and has no clue what's going on, and these are the you know the old heads, if you will, who have done it all, seen it all, that kind of thing. And you're going to learn from the new guy, but you kind of take them by the hand and and lean them lead them down the right path. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And that's uh, like Dave Jasper and I met uh, at an NMRA event. And, uh, and, and that's the same thing. I, we've met other people at uh, some of those, uh, remember the mall shows that we used to have and the things. Yep. That, and so some have met at, at NMRA events. So exactly. That's, uh, that's, that's exactly right. You meet people share an interest, and you start running to each other. So what you're telling me is there's this closet group of S-scalers in the Twin Cities that nobody else knows about. Uh, uh, there's probably about 20 of them, and, and I think you would know many of them, but, we, but you know, we keep it quiet. You should wear pins. So you can identify. See, you know. Yeah, Joe, what you don't know is if there's an s there's two S-scale groups, you know. You know, if there's... <laughs> <laughs> there's 20 escalers in this town. There's got to be two escal clubs, right? You know, you know that, but that's true with any model railroad. <laughs> yeah, yeah so three model railroaders for an opinion, you get four opinions. You get four opinions, yeah. So you said a great thing, Ken. You brought up necessity. You, you, you know, you're in a scale where pretty much if you can't make it, you don't get it. So necessity was great for building switches. And I want to go to you, Larry, on this because you do all these electronics. You want them. And your clients go, hey, can I make this? I, I want I want a blacksmith. Okay, but I want sparks to come off it. I mean, necessity <laughs> for you filling. I mentioned that because I saw a video of a crazy guy who did that today. Anyway, but necessity of de these customers' demands for these electronics as your as your electronic devising skills improved and evolved from all this. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I was a programmer in the seventies. Back when you had to enter the, dip, the bits in, no, 
hit switches. You push switches and select it and access, you know, it was was ridiculous. And I got out of programming around 95. I said, I'm never going to do that again. That's the biggest pain in my neck ever. There are plenty of other programmers out here. Well, I become a model railroader and, uh, and it's worse. I see, I see these circuits and I'd say, geez, it would be cool. But for instance, I have a, I have a circuit that a servo turns a water tank. Okay. A little water spout for a diesel or for a steamer. Sorry. And it turns it around. And the customer said, geez, it'd be awesome if it made sound. Okay. So, I mean, writing the code for a servo turning off the push buttons, nothing. But now I've got, well, where do I get sound for a tender being filled? And then how do I synchronize it to the, the thing coming over? That became the necessity. And this guy bought five of them because he was so impressed that I got it done. And then he said, so we get four of, four of the five done. And he says, you know, we've got, I have another circuit it's called the wheel squeal. So as the train comes by, it activates a sensor and the, the, the sound of the wheel squeal fades in. And as the train exits, it fades out. Well, he's got three of those around. He said, well, here's the problem. He said, where that water spout is where the wheel squeal needs. I need to put the wheel squeal. Is there any way you can have the water spout turn off the wheel squeal? Yet another code thing. It's, there's no one out there that's done that. Nobody. No, you know? I think they're trying to stump you, Larry. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a test. <laughs> so far, it hasn't happened. See, that's pretty cool, you know? the flexibility that's out there. Yeah, and, you know, it's not to brag on me. It's just, you know, I've, I've been messing. Oh, I got started with Arduino, and I don't know who has the lotto on that one. But uh was uh, Jim Scores of NCE fame. I was doing a timer with a discrete chip for a, for a friend to turn on the sound module every now and then. And I was struggling because the chip had limitations. And now I was thinking about, well, if I add this and do this, and Jim's talking to me on the phone. He says, Larry, turn around. He's never been here. He says, turn around. So, okay. He says, look down. What do you see? I said, my Arduino box. He said, there's your timer. <laughs> and I wasn't even thinking about it. I was I wasn't even thinking about it. I was like, oh, God, here I am writing code again. You know, and that started this whole mess. So now I've, there are guys out there doing commercial products that do amazing things. You, We talked about mentors earlier. My biggest mentor is a guy by the name of Jeff Bunza, okay? <coughs> Jeff is an amazing human being, and he's incredibly intelligent. And he has written more code for Arduino than anybody I know. But I've come up with these ideas and I make them sort of work and pass them off to him. And then he says, that's great. What if we did this? Two o'clock in the morning, I'm talking to a guy in Washington State writing code. It's huge that the changes in the, I just shifting gears. I just did a scenery change over here on the corner of my layout. I wasn't happy with it when it was done by a friend 20 years ago. But I was disgusted to the point where I didn't want to rip it all out and start over again, right? My skills have changed to the point now where one of the, my friends, you guys don't live in the South, so you don't know what kudzu is. But kudzu is this invasive vine that's all over the South. They brought it in to feed cattle, and it literally takes over the South all summer long. One of the guys says, geez, that wall looked good if it had kudzu growing up. All right, now I've fixed the scenery because... The bottom can be done, and I can make it look like kudzu. 
I couldn't have done that 20 years. First of all, Kudzu wasn't as invasive then, and there was nothing out there that looked like it. Think about it. Sawdust is what we had 20, 25 years ago with a little bit of ground foam. Now we've got 95 textures of ground foam (laughs) and products. There's a guy that sells Kudzu. You know, you can buy this stuff that looks like Kudzu. Well, and that's the advancement of a lot of that technology, like you said. I mean, from the electronics to the scenery, it has evolved to such a point that we can really almost pick a prototype and say, I want to do that. Whether it's the application in the Arduino, whether it's the application of the scenery. I know Dan and I were both uh, Hiawatha Elevated District modelers, and we're honing in to the point that we can say, we want that elevator with that size silo, with that type of ground cover, and really dial that stuff in. And I think a lot of times our research is just as important. And I'm going to spin one to you, Dan, and just ask, where do you develop and start to be able to build the research if you're starting from scratch, if you're starting over in an area? I know on my dad's railroad, we're doing Delano, the depot that's there in another building. We look at prototype photos back in the 70s, and that's what we're going to start shifting that area to. So we're changing a scene. But talking to you, when you came into, you're saying this is like your third railroad, where did you start that, that research to be able to start diving into creating the elevator district and to Larry's point, the scenery techniques, the, the buildings you're using and the stuff like that? What kind of started that road for you? That's a good question. Well, Evan, I think that what, where, where I found myself is first, I love doing, doing the research. The, the, these to me are fascinating rabbit holes. Me and too. They're, there are so many of these. We're talking technology. If we want to talk rolling stock, motive power, scenery, operations, there are all of these things. And the reality is it's much easier than it used to be. There are Facebook groups. You know, if you're on Facebook, circle around. If you're modeling the Pennsylvania Railroad, boom, log on. I'll bet you find a ton of groups. I'm going to throw a roadblock on you, Dan, and I'm just going to point that your Nokomis elevator you've really brought in a look of Nokomis. Take that structure and take us down your research thought process to do that building the way you did it. So the Nokomis elevator, I knew how it looked because I frequently traveled. I had photographs of it. I knew I didn't have enough room to build a one-to-one model, but I wanted to create a reasonable look of it. What I started doing was looking at buildings that I could kit bash into the uh, brick structure. I wanted to look at the fact that that building has this horrible, like, it coating. cheese. It they, looks they, <laughs> they smear it all over the darn thing. And I thought, well, how the heck am I going to build that? And I started fiddling with some texture material. And, and I'm like, you know, that kind of works. I think I can make that work. You know, then and what did you use to get that weird texture material? It looks like an insulation or something was sprayed on the building. It does look like that. I, I use what the heck is it called? It's uh basically it's it's like a like a, a matte paste. I've got it here, I can I can bring it up. But it, you know, it was something that I Tom and I talked about and I went and bought some, but I actually bought it for a totally different purpose. And I came back and I, I started looking at it and thinking, if I smear that on there heavily, I think it's gonna work. And darned if it didn't. You know, and then, you know, the others, it's just like with any modeling project, creating different sub-assembly. You know, the, the building has two groups of elevators. They're different. Okay. So I, I could work at, at creating those two looks, making them, you know, kind of match up to the prototype, working with working with paint to try and get them to match, building my bays for 
loading and unloading. So let me ask, let me ask you this, Dan, back to the topic. Could you have built that Nokomis mill 15 years ago with the skills you had then? What has changed? Yeah. So what has changed that your skills have evolved to build this almost hyper accurate model, compressed model? Well, I, I think the one thing I, I realized, I, I could more effectively kit the structure together and make it look reasonable. Second is I could look at these things now, which I couldn't do back then, and say, all right, I can recreate the sub-assemblies of this thing, and I can get them reasonably painted up. Now, that was that was a little bit of an exercise for me because I wasn't sure. But I'm like, I think I can do this. Well, truth of the matter, those things have multiple coats of paint on them because I screwed them up. Fresh coat of paint, today's a new day, and eventually I got it down to the point where I was right. If I wasn't sure, I painted the back of it. I believed, I had the confidence that I could figure these things out because I developed skills at smaller projects and figuring those out, which then enabled me to take on a larger and larger. What I think helps there too is that you brought almost this level of layering. And that's where I was trying to dig a little bit out of you is that Nokomis has so many different textures that you really grab those flavors, colors, and that eye that you've refined over the time has really brought in the ability to compress it, for one. But number two is to bring in so many different techniques that you use. He uses, uh, Dan uses gasket material for his roads, and he did a really nice clinic for the NMRA uh, Twin Cities uh, little meet that we had up here. And that, normally you would not think gasket material when you're thinking, I'm going to put down roads. But the effect that he's created, and you've, you've developed the skill set that it's believable. I've, I actually ran into a guy at one of the flea markets locally, and he said he recently tried the gasket material technique and loved it. So that's that sharing of information and ideas. But it is that idea that we develop these skills over time. And if we don't develop those skills over time, you're not going to get better and improve and eventually custom paint locomotives or lay down 10 coats of paint. I think we all collectively can agree on that. Well, you know, you know, well, if I, if I could jump out of that one step further. Well, all of us, when we started, had this idea, well, you know, you just put this stuff together and it's good to go. There's a point you reach with your modeling where you say, that won't be good enough. Anything I want to do beyond that, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it. And I won't necessarily be able to just go out and buy that. Well, that's Mike in his 70 times. I mean, he's got to figure it out. And that's how he's got to get himself there. And I think, you know, to me, that's one of the more fun aspects to the hobby. You can see that as an obstacle. You can see it as a challenge. But either way, there's nothing that has to be a deal breaker. You can do something if you're willing to just keep backing up and looking at it fresh. And one of the things I love doing is when I'd be working on my layout and designing it or planning stages of it is saying, All right, how do I make that work? Very often, just sitting ruminating about it, I'd be like, oh, I can do it that way. Well, do you know if that's going to work? No, not really. But I think it will. But that's that's a sense of accomplishment that's so rewarding. I find that with projects I've worked on. I know Ken talks about with S-Scale and your scratch building stuff. That's a successful project once it's complete. And again, I I kind of joked about Mike's 70-tonner, but Mike, completing a project like that, and when you do reach that finish line, that sense of accomplishment, it's pretty cool. And you, it, rightfully, you should brag about the stuff you complete in a Comus or an S-scale you know, locomotive, or in Mike's case, the 70. I think yeah. it's cool. I think what both of you are alluding to 
is uh, a skill that I didn't have, but we're all starting to develop, is being able to see things. When we first start in this hobby, oh, there's a train. Now you recognize the locomotive, the type of car, yes. uh, the surrounding buildings that you never noticed 15, 20 years ago. The more you notice those little nuances, like Dan looking at all the piping on a grain elevator, to us, it's just weird piping, but he knows what <laughs> each one of them does. Yep. So now when he's modeling it, he's more prototypical in how that goes together. I think training your eyeball is uh, probably the most important part of research is being able to see what you see rather than just this big, giant mass of color. Well, and, and, and seeing what you want to model, not just what's available. Heck, there's ready-to-run 70 tires out there. You're not using them for a very good reason. They don't perform the way you need them to perform on your layout. Right. And so you said, I have to take this to another level. And, you know, I, I mean, to me, that's that's it. I don't have to stop there because this isn't made. Well, I'll, I'll keep building 70 tonners until someone comes out with them. <laughs> That's right. Repeat it. Yes, the other nine philosophy. Keep building, Mike. Repeat going to announce them right after Christmas. Yeah, yeah repeat. Exactly. Yeah. Repeat will come out 50% off. Santa Maria Valley prepainted. Yeah. <laughs> all five numbers. All, all numbers. <laughs> all right, Joe, let's hear about how you've evolved into this amazing painter because we know airbrushing is one of the biggest fears or tough things to do in modeling. So what brought you along that kept you going and improving? Well, when I was a kid living in, in mommy and daddy's house, my older brother was into um he wanted to be a art director, that kind of stuff. So he had this Pache VL, and he had given me one of the old Badger ones that's got the nozzle that sticks straight up out of the bottle, and then the air blows across it. You adjust that tiny little nozzle, and that's going to give you your paint, your paint pattern. Well, that didn't work for crap on 72nd scale airplanes, so I said, hey, let me use that one. Well, that's the one I'm going to use for work. I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. So he was at work one day, and I went and grabbed it and set it up and, and started painting with it. And, you know, the first one's... I think I could have done a better job with a, a, a broom, but, you know, you figure it out. And, uh, <laughs> a like, whisk like broom or a push broom? It's a push broom. But, you know, and I can remember one time I was down there and, and grabbed the, the black paint, the scale coat black, and I, it was too tight to, to open, and I grabbed the pliers and I squoze it and un, un, uh did the, the top until it broke and then there's blood and paint flowing all over the place. And, you know, another time I'm airbrushing and I look up and there's this cloud of, of paint because I didn't have a spray booth at the time. And I'm thinking, oh, this probably isn't good for me, is it? So it's just... I'm sure it did no damage. It wasn't. I'm sure it wasn't. There's nothing we noticed. Arm out of my forehead came from. <laughs> nothing we noticed. Well, you yeah. know, yeah. So it's only just, if it was focal, full strength, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I've painted probably 300 model airplanes over time and a, and a couple hundred freight cars and 50 or 60 locomotives. I think that's a low number, but it's just playing with the stuff and, and, and fooling around with it and, and looking at, you know, when someone says, hey, I just painted this. Okay, that's a beautiful finish. What did you do? Well, you know, I put the paint on and then I, I sprayed 
mostly thinner and just a little bit of paint in there and real low pressure. Wow, okay, that's cool. I'll have to try that. And it's just with anything, with electronics, Larry, or handling track Tom, or, you know, 70 tonners Mike, you just got to play with it and, and, and be willing to screw stuff up. If you're, if you're unwilling to screw stuff up, you're too scared to try anything. I think you know, we're supposed key. to be having fun. It's a hobby, right? Yes, but, yes. That's, that's exactly it. Even when I alluded to people paying me to do it, when you make it work, there's that sense of satisfaction that just yep. you can't knock that smile off your face. It doesn't matter if it's for you or somebody else. Yeah, when you when you do a good job with something, there is that sense of satisfaction. All right, bring on the next thing. Let's see what I can do next. I think, you know, one of the, the biggest aspects of satisfaction in the hobby is taking on a new challenge and mastering it. I, I just think to me, that's a, that's a tremendous sense of accomplishment. And I look at, like, you know, Will, some of the, the de- graphics you've done, your decals. Oh, God, I, I love that you have those skills and that you sell the decals and I can buy them. <laughs> yes, oh, this we is like fabulous. it better that he's yeah. willing to share. So happy. I remember you talking about, was it the round Great Northern or the transfer? It was the transfer. We talked about that the the letters are actually camphored. They're not. Yes. They're not perfectly. And that I think uh, it's, it's a little detail that a lot of people don't notice. But Dan's referring to the Minnesota Transfer Railway, which is basically a circle with Minnesota Transfer Railway on the outside, and then it says uh, "Heart of the Midway" in the center. Well, those letters are actually basically, if you think of it, kind of like uh, you know a female figure. They kind of are tapered. It's going to be wider at the top, and it narrows down to the stiletto heels at the bottom. It, they're all tapered into the center of the logo, and people overlook that. A lot of times, they'll just type it out in Word, throw it on a locomotive, and say, it's done. Well, on the graphic design side, those little details matter. And again, from even a graphic side, you guys have all asked just over time about different types of graphics, and sometimes it's those little details that make the Joe Binish paint scheme come to life. You know, you've got to have the Santa Maria Valley. You've got to have the right logo. You have to have the right typeface. The little details, I look at them and I see them and I think I cringe sometimes at some of the custom work that can be out there. But those are little details that I've advanced my own skill set. And, you know, reluctantly, fellow modelers can enjoy some of those decals and graphics I've done because I pay attention to what I call the details of the nitty gritty. You're able to see. Yes. You're able to see those details are that the rest of us don't. And that is a learning curve for model railroaders is that when you first start, you get the old badger out and think that that's good. And then as you start learning to see, you realize you got to up your game. So, Mike, I think that's a really insightful point that one of the things that changes and evolves is seeing things as they are not as you think they should be. To me, that, that was a big shift, being able to say, oh, I'm, I'm actually looking at not how I think that should look, but how it actually looks. And that helps me a lot like with scenery, with backgrounds, with, with a lot of aspects of my modeling, is just opening my eyes to try and see what is. Yeah, I think the other thing that's changed is, think about 25 years ago, if you wanted to know something about the prototype, you had to either find someone that knew about it or maybe stumble across a book because there was nothing out there that had a, a category other than a few of the historical society. Today, you can get on Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, whatever, 
type in what you're looking for and have a hundred things about it and educate yourself. That's going to make you a better modeler because, you know, if you want to know what the odd thing is, as a New York Central modeler, I can get on and put milepost 28 outside of Poughkeepsie and there's 40 pictures of it, you know? <laughs> and uh, Sure. And well, that, so, that, that that's the bane of my existence, though. Yeah. Is I model this little tiny Santa Maria Valley, and I used to be able to just tell people things that happened, and they believed in me because no one knew anything about it. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and now, you know, if I make up some story, all of a sudden, forty guys are got their cell phone out, and, and you know, correcting me instantly. So, that's that's why I yeah. model a railroad of lies. No one can correct me. So, trustworthy. So tell tell me tell me how they're going to you know say anything against the Schnossage right, right. Anything goes. <laughs> so so Mike brought up a thing, and I'll maybe go to Ken about this about the. The products, you know, we start airbrushing and you get your little badger with the flow jar and things. But I don't want people to think that they can only evolve because of the products. I mean, you can have a $200 static grass applicator and it's, your scenery's still not looking good. You know, you can have fast track fixtures and it's, you still can't get. It. So I think the skills, like we've been talking about, is, and Joe says, you learn, your skills are in the trash can. Move on. Keep wanting more, like Dan says, do more research. And don't be afraid because, like like Dan Williams said, we couldn't build the Nokomis Mill 15 years ago, but you'll right. get there. And if you, and Ken, like you and I are in the midst of layouts and building cities that I've got the city on my layout and I know what I want it to look like, but my skills aren't there yet. I'm not quite the Greg Dahl and Dan. So I just have photographs and cardboard cutouts for now, but I know I can evolve those skills when I want to. Ken, are you working on, do, what do you believe about that? I think that's true, but but the other thing is, don't get limited in the hobby because you don't have the skills right now. Reach out and uh, and, and get with your community. You don't get extra. Uh, I mean, if you're doing a model in a contest, you do, but otherwise, you don't get extra points just because you did it all yourself. If you have a fine layout that you and a community built, it's still a fine layout. You can have a lot of fun with it, and quite frankly. Having friends come over that know that they contributed something is is pretty neat. You're talking about the static grass applicator. I've got one, and I'm proficient at putting grass down, but I'm not proficient at blending colors and and the nuances of that because there's other people out there that that just see colors better than I do, and no amount of practice is ever going to help me do that. So I I need to have that community of friends. That's cool. Ken, what, what you said, I think, is so important. I, I, you know, I couldn't, people, sometimes they're just afraid to advance themselves out there, but I wouldn't know Will if it hadn't been for the fact we were standing around at the Century Train Show a number of years ago, and we're looking at the same thing, and he starts talking to me, introduces himself, gives me his email address, and things went from there. Reach out, make contacts, make, make friends. Gary Friesman, my entree. To operations. I met him at a flea market. We started talking about what I was doing, what he was doing. He said, come on over and operate. I was like, wow. That was, you know, those are the things that mean so much. But you got to get out there. and Exactly. Know, if, if they're not going to land in your lap, you got to get out there and, and meet people and talk to people. Yes. 
You mentioned sure. Gary Friesman, how he got you into operations, and, and me too, uh, between him and Dave Voss. The Twin Cities owe those two guys a huge debt of thanks if you're in the uh, operating crew uh, or yes. the operating yeah, community. Those same guys here. Are I'm, I, I learned from Gary. My dad and I started operations because of Gary uh, yep. and Dave. We've operated at Dave's as well. But this whole group, I think we've all touched in some way or form. But Gary was just such an advocate to always just say, come on and try it. And I know yep. a lot of times people could be intimidated by it. But once you got past that and you could get past an intimidation factor, the fun was there. And I said, that changed model railroading single-handedly for us. We yes. went from running in a loop. He came out and looked at our railroad, gave us a few tips and pointers, and it changed the way we looked at model ring. And I mean, I'm thankful for Gary for that, but also the crew of guys that we've met over the years going to op sessions. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the biggest thing I say is that Gary Friesman ruined model railroading because he introduced me to operation. And what, uh, what an invigorating step to go from static model railroading to prototypical operation. You, you had the choice, the red pill or the blue pill, right? You took the red yeah. so, You could be sitting on a bass boat somewhere in the south right now. Yeah. So well, I, would, I would say, though, of a skill set that I've had over the years, one of the things that I've advanced the most on probably has been operations. I went from, we went from basically nothing to car card system. Now we're on to switch list. And I think that for me has brought the enjoyment to it. But I want to open up to you guys and we'll start with Mike. What is, what is the number one thing? It's a skill or asset that you've had model railroading that you've gone from what you consider your worst to the best. I think operations, just learning how different cars, products move across the railroad and then trying to change that car card waybill system to be more prototypical so that, you know, I was at one friend's house and he spotted an automobile box car at the flower elevator and a fellow <laughs> model railroader pointed out that they would never put flour in an automobile boxcar. <laughs> so, you know, you start learning these little rabbit holes. Some people call it, you're just nitpicking, but no, you're learning about the real prototypical railroad and then trying to replicate that on your own. And I think that skill has been from you know, not knowing, oh, this is a pretty car. Right, from an evolutionary state. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the evolution of, of how those cars are used on the road. And I think that's probably one of the biggest changes. Well, what about you, Ken, in the S-scale world? What's your number one thing that you went from worst to first or skill-wise? Uh, it's certainly not worst to first, but when I discovered operations, it changed the way I looked at my layout because I had a big round and round. And I'm still develop. I'm still evolving that. Looking back, if 20 years ago I'd torn everything out and started over, it might have been easier. But we don't do things that way. At least a lot of us don't. We have to learn the hard way. You know, I I think that operations has has changed the hobby for me. And I have friends that like to have their railroads operate like a play, where the trains come on and the trains go off, and and that's just that's a whole fun evening in of itself, but it's a different fun evening. For me, it's the learning about operation, what kind of cars do what, and, and just how to uh, how to process things through a railroad. So that's great. How about, uh, Dan, what's your worst to first? Oh, golly, 
There, there's so many because I had so many worse. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I really, I you know, I really have to go along with what everybody said. I, I developed back with my my first serious railroad an interest in operations and never really got it. To, it, it just never really evolved and worked. But I, I like the concept of operations. And, and when I built, when I started the most recent layout back end of 2018. I knew that being able to design it for operation was crucial to me. that. I, I, and, and in doing so, it really does how you look at your railroad. You know, to me, I think of, of designing a, a track plan and a layout as layering things. What, you know, one of those layers was how will this operate? Absolutely. And, and having had the benefit of exposure to operation on other people's layouts, you know, working up an operational scheme on my little switching layout and things gave me a better sense of what I what I wanted and also what would work. I just think that's really, uh, really been fun. And, the, you know, the other piece would be just having that opportunity to, frankly, to geek out and climb down these obscure rabbit holes of research that I just love. I don't care if other people like them or don't like them. They don't have to do them. It's their railroads. That's their thing. But I love doing that. So like you said, Will, I spent a lot of time photographing the Nokomis elevator because I just thought, God, I want something that when you look at it, you know exactly where you are. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something you dialed in and nailed. It's, it's impressive. You know, I mean, I look at you know what you're doing operational with the Hiawatha line. And yes, and you you know, you've got a longer run of track than I do. So you've got more of those elevators there. And I'm just thinking, this is just going to be so dang cool. Well and that's what makes it fun though. I think we develop between each other. We both are doing the Hiawatha elevator just so we have a, a common thread there that we can work between one another. You're in the two thousands, I'm in the the research is what's fun. And I think that's what's neat and learning that type of stuff. But to even continue, just to jump, I want to jump over to Joe real quick. Is uh, Joe, what is your skill set jumping from what you considered something that you weren't so great at to where you're at now? Well, it's it's not so great, to, still not so great. But um, you know, we talk about having the group of guys over to help, but that is a management exercise for the layout owner. You have got to have projects that are appropriate for everybody's skill level to keep these guys busy for two and a half or three hours to produce the kind of layout that you want. And so there are guys that you don't want wiring and there are guys that you don't want painting scenery and this, that, and the other thing. So Is not that having why a professional I went and got career. coffee all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Donut we get coffee and cookies, Mike. You're in charge of that. So have you evolved but, in that, Joe? Have, I mean, if that's what some, you were doing, is is this something that you're doing better now or what was what was wrong at first and what are you doing now? Well, so uh, the first time, you know, I had an up, uh, a work session. It was, okay, jump in there. Everybody have a good time. and bench work was askew and and wiring was well i did the wiring so that's my own fault <laughs> but um <laughs> you know there's just certain things it's like oh, okay i can't have that guy do that again you know there's some painting stuff on my layout that some of the roofs were painted by a guy who has the shakes well that clearly was the wrong job to give him so we'll have to remake those buildings at some point you're saying then people management skills is yeah, something that exactly. you feel you've improved right, right. the operation thing too Shoot the last session on Rich's layout. I actually timetable and train order dispatched, and we didn't have any train meets that were unscheduled. So, worst to That's first good. there. But 
But yeah, it's just that management thing and understanding that some guys can do well doing this project and some guys can't. You have to tell them, no, you can't do that without, you know, hurting their feelings and pissing them off. So we'll go to Larry then. Larry, what if, what do you think all your career here in modeling and working for other people? What skill do you yeah. think you've, you've evolved the most on? I, I could tell you probably easier than ones I haven't evolved on. I mean, that's for it takes too long for all of us. Yeah, it's, another it's, podcast. I get, I think the thing I've gotten the best at is trackless. Twenty years ago, Atlas switches were perfectly acceptable on your layout, and we all knew the shortcuts to make them work right and keep them. But now, Pico Microengineering, name the list. The Walter Shinaharas and new stuff is all light years ahead, but putting it together and making it reliable, whether you do fast tracks or whether you're doing just purely scratch built right off of a plan, which fast tracks provide you. You don't have to buy their jig. You know, you just do it off a plan. But that's probably where my biggest evolution is. I can, I'm comfortable knowing that when I'm done working on some track, it's going to work and you're not going to have a problem. Well, then let me ask you quick, Larry, of your, uh, we'll take turnouts just as an example. Your number one recommendation, is it a Pico turnout? Is it an Atlas turnout? Is it hand laid? What is your number one recommendation for the best way to put a turnout? Hand laid first. I would follow it with a close second on now Pico or the uh, Shinohara Walters, the Walters Shinohara. Microengineering is fourth or fifth. And the only reason is they're so dang delicate. If, if you just do something wrong. Yep. But the big aspect to it is, for instance, I laid some track at, a, at the club last night and we were cutting a gap. After the gap was cut, the spike heads on the flex track broke, uh-huh. you know, and it just sprung out of position. Yep. So guys thinking, oh, man, we got to redo all this. I said, no, watch. And I pulled out my my little uh, drill, drilled a small hole, put a spike in. Put a jab of ACC on it. Put another spike a little farther up. That's never going to move again. It's going to be perfect forever until they rip it out. And I said, but you've got to be careful. Use your NMRA gig. That's where I've improved. Because years ago, I'd have pulled all that up and put down another piece of track that would have taken me another hour and a half because this was a cut-in piece. But now it's fixed. It's The gaps are, been, are be, going to be epoxied Saturday. And it'll be filed smooth, and it'll be just absolutely stellar. But even where it was, I took a boxcar, and I just pushed it at, you know, Mach 7 through that turnout and that track and had the guy catch it before it went into the engine. No problem. So I know an engine that weighs 12 ounces is going to work. Every aspect, though, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And back to the Reagan thing, staff your weakness. Tom amazes with some of the stuff he does. I watch his videos and go, wow. And I've got guys like that in my life around here that are Dave Hank, who will never listen to this podcast, but he's a, he owned a hobby shop and I used to hang around with him and he taught me how to take a piece of 40,000 styrene and make something out of it. Just get it in your head, come up with some proportions and build it. We've all got those guys in our lives and that's where the big difference. Thank goodness we do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what about you, Tom? Tom, as far as a skill set, you'd say, I mean, you're an MMR, so you've got the skill set to show what you're capable of. Where do you think your biggest range from a low to high in your uh, modeling endeavors is at? One of the many points we're all talking about are specific technical 
things we've learned, electronics, airbrushing, research, where I look back at the photos of my old previous layouts and to where this one has come, I think the one thing I've developed and keep evolving is creating a scene. And I try to create a scene from my point of view, from the rail fan point of view, from the railroad's point of view, being on a train all the time. I look around, I'm like, okay, this is what it should look like going down a track in a yard at an industry. And I feel that I have developed the sense to create these mini scenes that by, like Larry said, through the videos and the photography and being featured in, in magazines and other things, that people like it. So I know I'm striking a chord where, you know, where my previous layouts, you know, were the paint it green, paint it brown, stick on a Bachman tree and, and call it good. And now I think my techniques have evolved where not only am I building trees, but Dan knows and anybody's visiting me that I'm, I don't know, I don't want to use the word psycho, but I don't know what else works when you build a weeping willow tree with 5,000 branches. So <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I think we, we have the jacket new, ready, Tom. Yeah, I have the jacket ready when they ask, how do you make <laughs> Usually when people ask me to make them a willow tree, that's when the, the gloves come off. So yeah, I don't know. I think you. that's what I've done because people appreciate the photos. You know, I'm currently working on sending in a, a layout submission to one of the magazines and, and we'll see how it goes. But I like, I enjoy looking at my layout. I don't cringe. So maybe that's my skill. Oh, you have a good eye for it. And, and the, no. the detail is you know an appropriate amount of detail and, and you know, detail spots and dead spots if you will, or, or calm spots. And it just, it looks railroady, you know, and there are just a couple of subtle things you do that make a big difference. Like that piece of black foam core back behind the, the forest against the backdrop so that you can't see all the way to the backdrop in, in the forest makes a huge difference. And it's, it's something, you know, not a big deal, but it makes the scene. Absolutely. Yeah. And that we'll go back and I'll wrap this up. And that goes back to, our community here, you know, and rural areas and everybody that, you know, I get these ideas from you. So I'll wrap it up, but these are the points and let me know if you guys agree that know that your skills will evolve. No matter where you're at, if you keep wanting to do it, you're going to evolve. You know, don't be depressed that you can't airbrush or wire or things like that. You will evolve. And this one, I like learn from the community, join a community, join the NMRA, join history. Even if you have to join online, there's some wonderful online communities on YouTube, on these chat groups, IO messengers, and seek out mentors. I think one of the most valuable things people can give each other, you know, one of the great questions is, you know, if we had a new model railroad here, you know, with us tonight, what would you give them? If you, oh, I'd give them a subscription or I'd give them a soldering gun or I'd give them this. I think giving them the gift of your time is the greatest gift you can do for someone. I think we're at the age and the stage of our modeling that we're the mentors. And it's, maybe we don't think that way because of all the stuff in our trash can, but we actually are. And then don't be so tough on yourself now. You'll you'll improve with effort. Does that kind of sum it up for you guys as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Good synopsis. Okay. Well, well, with that, we'll sign off, and I'll have you guys say good night, and uh, we'll send an email to Mr. Dave Hank and tell him to start listening. So <laughs> thank you guys for participating and, and thank everyone for listening. So have good night now. Thank you. Good night, good night. Good night, night. Gracie. Good night, Dick. All right, here's a promotion coming at you for the gripe of the pod. 
donut projects. These are the projects you got sitting on your workbench that you had great aspirations of hacking and whacking and jacking and sacking and creating this unique monstrosity. Well, you realized you weren't going to probably be able to finish it. You got in a little too deep. It's just like that custard donut that you didn't want to finish. You gotta walk away. Nobody's gonna eat the rest of that. Unless it's George Costanza. Your project might be like that donut. It's time to walk away. And that's the curmudgeon's gripe of the pod. Okay, Luke, I'm gonna take, can you move your microphone? Oh, yep. Straighten it out. Up, down. Put it up, put it up. Up, better. Okay, now, now we talk a little bit. And then we can wind again? Yep. Oh, okay, we're good there. Okay, we try that all again? No, well, I'll, I can edit that. I, we'll move it up and you're still, still getting there. Yeah, there you go. Better? Much better. Okay, we'll do that then. Listening to The Crossing Game, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division. You can find us on Facebook in our group, the Twin Cities Division of the NMRA. You can email us at tcdnmra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts.